Welcome to Beyond the Ring, a podcast that covers all things in the stock show industry from the informative to the insane, starring Ryan Rash. I'm a guy with big hair and big ideas. And Dale Hummel. I'm never going to financially recover from this. Now on with the show. Hello. We're excited to put on episode two, and we have a a guest coming in today to join Ryan and I. But before we get into that segment, I'm going to go ahead and and we're going to clear the air here a little bit. We've had a lot of questions about the Tiger King update, and as of right now, Carol Baskin is not returning my calls. Okay, but see, Dale, the problem is, is that you announced to me on while we were recording this live that you knew Carol Baskin. You forgot to put in the fact that she hates you. You didn't mention that. I, d- I don't know that she hates me, but we've been on opposing sides of several interviews and, and topics in the past. So I, I, I presume she's probably not a fan. Um, and consequently, she is not taking my call. I, I gave you the, the assignment to track down Joe Exotic and the medical lockdown. Any, any luck on that? And as I told you, I'm too pretty to go to prison. So first off, he's in lockdown because he can't get the corona because then he'll die and then everybody be mad. So they've got him in lockdown. And and number two, I cannot go to prison. I told you this. I would be way too popular. But they say when he gets out of medical lockdown, he's got like 5,000 interviews to do. But we're going to try to find somebody that was on the show or find us a way to like beat through the line to talk to Joe Exotic. Because I would love to interview him. I think that that works. I do have a a friend of mine that knows Joe Exotic, knows Carol. He also knows a gentleman by the name of Tim Stark that was on the Tiger King. He, I believe, was one of the exotic cat breeders from Indiana. It sounds like if if our listeners would like, we can likely get him on to visit a little bit. It would not be Joe Exotic. It would not be Carol, but we're getting closer. Well, Joe ain't going to have no interview with anybody for a while because he's in jail. Like, there ain't going to be no TV cameras for a while. I think they can do some interviews from, from prison. I, I've seen them on documentaries. Well, I wouldn't know. Fortunately, I've never been to one, so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you can do interviews in prison. I don't know. How is, uh, how is Bored at Home serving you? Uh, bored at Home? Uh, I'm still bored. <laughs> the most bored. I'm getting very, very upset because every time I see something on the news that I think, you know what, we might be coming out of this. It might be all right. Then I see something like they canceled the World Series of Poker in Vegas. Now, if they're going to cancel that and move that back to, like, fall, oh, Lord, I may never see Las Vegas again. It's going to be so sad. I try to go there, like, almost every year for my birthday, and it's coming up, and I don't know if I'm going to make it, but I'm going to be somewhere, even if it's illegal, because I got to get off Cahill. I got to. It's just got to happen soon. I, I get it. I, I'm almost to the point where this this is crazy. One day, everything seems to be getting better. The next day... We have crude oil prices in the negative. Uh, the World Health Organization is telling us we're, we're still have the worst to come up and down. And, and right now, it, I'm to the point where or maybe Ryan was last week that I'm ready to get this world opened up or our economy opened up and, and get moving. I think there is a game changer out there. I'm hoping there's a game changer out there. My best chance of, of Ryan or the best chance of you getting to Las Vegas for your birthday, which I don't think is going to happen soon enough, there's some testing going on with the antibody testing, I should say, to, to determine how many people in the United States have actually had COVID-19 and built up an antibody response. Some results are coming out as, as low as 5%, some as high as 15%. 
there was an interesting study from a prison in Ohio. They uh, had tested all the inmates there, and 5% of the inmates that actually tested positive showed any symptoms. That puts 95% asymptomatic, and that's a good sign that, that hopefully a lot more people here in the U.S. have, have had the coronavirus with, without symptoms and made it through it and have antibodies, and that, that gets us a lot closer to normalization much, much more quickly. Well, uh, right before we came on here, I was watching Fox, and the Las Vegas mayor was on there, and she was explaining her rationale for why they needed to go on and open up and all this, and she brought up that that like right now we have to assume until we can get more testings that most of the people are asymptomatic or have had it, and we don't know about it. And she went into this long whole ordeal. But her big thing is that this is going to be around just like the flu forever, and so we're going to have to go on and move on regardless. And there, there's going to be some risk involved, and everybody knows that. But for those of the those people who are willing to take those risks, like me, I'm ready to risk last week, last month, whatever. I mean, I'm ready. Let's go. But she said that, you know, we shouldn't hinder all Americans and everyone in the country because parts of us don't want to take risks, et cetera, to try to go on and see normalcy again, which I also thought it was funny. At the end of that, uh, the Fox News commentator announced her as the Democratic mayor from Las Vegas, and she flipped out and said that she was an independent and nonpartisan, like screaming at the guy that she wasn't a Democrat. I was like, oh, that's funny. (laughs) But I wouldn't (laughs) want to be labeled a Democrat either. But somehow he thought she was. (laughs) Well, I I hope it all I hope it all comes around sooner than later. There was a U.S. company, LabCorp, uh, that just announced, I believe, FDA approval on a home test that uh, hopefully will be available sooner than later, and that's for the actual COVID-19, not the antibody test. And there's one other thing I want to touch on um, that's that's really been wearing on me since the last episode, and even more so this week as more information continues to, to filter through. But there's a battle for global leadership between communist China and obviously the United States. I have a, a maybe a little bit of, of background I need to to give you before I go too far, but I have a plan that, that may help us economically. We just have to get President Trump to adopt this plan. China, a while ago, several years ago, somewhat took over the Spratlys Islands, which basically consists of seven islands off the coast of Malaysia and the South China Sea. They, they essentially are just rocks out in the middle of international waters. Nobody's claimed them. They're not anybody. They're not part of any country. But China has taken them over and manufactured. They're saying they're building islands. There's actually a little bit there, and they continue to build upon those, where now they have a couple military bases that have, have been established on these Spratlys Islands. The international courts had ruled against China for claiming those islands and continuing to build on them. One day after the international court came out and, and basically said this, this cannot happen or should not happen, Communist China basically releases a statement, and the statement reads as such in a translation, a piece of paper that is destined to come to naught, a piece of paper that is destined to come to naught. In essence, they have no regard for the international court. They have no regard whether they should or shouldn't be building a military base in international waters. 
But that, that was, is what leads me to the possible plan. Currently, China holds $1.18 trillion in U.S. bonds. That being said, we've spent well more than that to stimulate the economy. We've lost many, many Americans from COVID-19. What would stop President Trump from explaining to China those U.S. bonds that they're currently holding is a piece of paper that's destined to come to naught? That would probably boost our economy as much as anything. I don't know how legal it is. I don't know what can be done or can't be done. But if we start to go back and say, China, we need to hold you responsible for what, what's happened here, whether it was let out of the lab or from the wet market, the cover-up those first few days, the first few weeks when they were gathering PPE and, and, and doing everything they were doing without notifying the world of what was going on, somehow, in my opinion, they need to be held accountable. And, and that's certainly one step that direction. We're starting to hear a little bit of rumbling about that. I don't know if it'll ever come to play, but if President Trump would take the lead on something like that, I would be shocked that other countries wouldn't follow suit. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. We've talked about this before between us, and something's got to give. I know that uh, also when I was watching Fox, I don't think it was last night, Missouri has now launched its first suit against China over Miss Rona and the people that died, et cetera. And so they've actually filed suit against China. But as you said, normally China doesn't pay attention to anything in the international world court. So don't know how that's going to go. I will say that I want to apologize to the person last week that I said started all this because he ate a bat. Because evidently, now, after all this information has come on, this is, in fact, the coronavirus and COVID-19 is the longest lasting thing that has ever been made in China. Because they made it and it got out. But anyhow, I don't know. It's a wreck. It is a wreck. Well, let's, uh, we, we have a, a guest with us today that we'll, we'll move into. And, and Ryan and I, when we talked about the vision for this podcast and the Beyond the Green platform, we wanted to address some topics, whether they're difficult or not, whether they're sensitive or not. But this particular issue is, is one that, that sometimes we, we don't always want to address because it is a tough issue that needs to be looked at openly and honestly without pointing any fingers or placing any blame. Rather, do our best to, to find the best path forward and, and educate uh, as many out there in our industry about drug testing and the, the, the positive and the negative and I don't think we could have a better person on than, than Matt Clays today, and we're, we're happy that Matt's going to be joining us. He can jump in and explain the good and the bad about the drug testing in the, in the stock show arena, and, and he's bringing it to us from a, a little different perspective. And, and we have a lot of scientists out there. We have a lot of people showing livestock. Uh, we have biochemists. We have muscle biologists, all these different people that, in essence, come together to, to try to determine how to, to put a drug testing protocol together. But in my mind, uh, Matt brings all of these particular aspects to the floor uh, himself. His, his background, obviously, he has a stock show background. He has incredible knowledge in biochemistry, muscle biology, carcass evaluation, all in one. And, and because of that, Matt's been asked to speak at, at several different uh, or give several presentations to the national shows and, and organizations across the country, not only here domestically, but I believe internationally as well. With that, I'd like to thank uh, Matt Clays for taking the time to join Ryan and I and, and jump in on this, this topic. And 
Matt, we're going to let you go whatever whatever direction you want, and, and Ryan and I will will tune in and out and, and try to assist where we can. But a topic that needs to be discussed, we're, we're not by any means trying to, to point fingers any one direction. It's just something that, that we need to try to find a better way. Well, Dale and Ryan, uh, thank you for asking me to uh, join you guys on Beyond the Ring Uh exciting podcast and and you guys aren't afraid to tackle some of the tough subjects because this is uh, certainly one of them that um, a lot of people look at and they're concerned um, families are concerned about uh, drug testing they're always fearful when you you get them in that that pen right to take that sample and and I think administration looks at things differently and I, I think we just need to take a, a common sense approach let the science lead us uh, in the right direction along with uh, the industry so I like to to start off just by rethinking zero tolerance because uh, we have an industry that is built on the FDA rule, the 1% rule, and zero tolerance doesn't, doesn't fit into that uh, at, at all. We have a World Trade Organization that uh, also uh, trades in different nutrient-dense protein sources that are um, not at zero tolerance either. So if and so when we we look at those things, I think we need to do the the same from a junior livestock standpoint. It, it's really challenging to me as to why do we always try to set a standard for our young people that goes beyond our industry. And uh, when we do that, I I think that uh, we set ourselves up for a number of challenges along the way. So I'd like to rethink zero tolerance. And after you guys just got done talking about COVID-19, we know that uh, the global industry of animal agriculture is affected beyond just uh, this, this COVID-19. I think when we go into uh, drug testing, we need to be more proactive in the technology world from the very start. And, and when we started drug testing, and I, I've been, been working with this for over a decade, um, you know, our detection systems were maybe parts per million, right? But now we're looking at parts per billion, parts per trillion, being able to detect those things pretty easily. So I think we need to engage in the realities of what we've created with the technology and also understand where that uh, industry falls. Ryan and, and Dale, you guys, you know, what's the purpose of the Animal Project? What do you guys think is, why do we show livestock? Why do we have juniors and families destined to raise their children in the livestock industry? Well, on a personal level for me, I think that the most important thing about this program is that it teaches these kids things that'll take them further and farther in the game of life down the road. And that's, you know, hard work, dedication, work ethic, you know, how to set a goal and work towards those goals, see them achieved, not only just by yourself, but as a group, whether that's family or other people involved and stuff like that. And the best thing that I heard 
and I've heard anybody say about this subject in a long time, is that why do we hold these kids to a standard that the industry itself cannot meet? And I've never understood that. And, you know, a lot of times I think there are so many people out there that show that think they have a grasp on what drug testing is and what it's not and how it's involved that really don't have nearly as much information on it as what they need to. And uh, zero uh, tolerance thing is something that is exceptionally hard to achieve because, again, you don't know how many times that animal has traded hands before you ever get it home to your house or your place, and you don't know what's happened there before. All you can do is the best that you can from the time that that animal makes it to your barn until the time that you go to those fairs. And and even then, in between all that, you go to prospect shows and travel up the road and do all things, and there's just no way to stay with that animal 24-7, 365, to make sure that nothing ever gets in them other than what you intend to be there. It's just an impossible situation. Do I think drug testing is a necessity? Absolutely. But I think that we've got to get to a level that we can make it more fair for everybody, including having drug tests, but also for that exhibitor. And I'm not nearly as advanced as Mr. Clay's here in terms of, you know, the level of testing and what they're looking for. But I do know that if we, if it's possible to have drug tests that only reflect on the time of the feeding period in which those are exhibitors are supposed to be in charge, we'd be a lot better off. No, and I agree completely with what Ryan's saying in terms of the benefits in the, in the stock show world. And, and this does, does take away from some of that. It, it creates a lot of tension, uh, anxiety. Uh, Ryan had mentioned it's impossible to stay with your animals 24-7. I have uh, three children still showing, actively showing in the junior market arena. And when we go to a show, whether it's our, our state fair or one of the national shows, and, and especially in situations where they're, they're not closed up at night and, and people are allowed to come through the barns, we, we almost have to have somebody there 24-7 just to make sure nothing is, nothing's happening to that animal or that animal's not being given anything that's going to cause an issue. And Matt, I would like you to, to maybe explain to, to our listeners just a little bit more about there, there are some shows that, that don't have a zero tolerance policy. They're, they're using different labs. There's, there's a lot of inconsistencies out there from your, your state fair to national shows and, and beyond. But what I, I would like you to focus on a little bit, Matt, and maybe explain to us a little better is, is zero tolerance. It, it sounds great. I have zero tolerance for a lot of performance-enhancing drugs that clearly should not be used in this particular arena. But at the same time, uh, Matt, I, I can remember several discussions with you about this. You have so many good examples on how we have static in the background and we have to, to use a level of common sense when we're testing and, and maybe go to quantitative testing where we can detect the exact levels that we're dealing with and, and rule out, is this performance enhancing or is this something that was contamination or static or background noise? Yeah, Dale, I like to uh, maybe have some lines in the sand, if you would, um, and that would be food safety and security. I think that uh, we definitely have to keep that in mind because we need to 
realize and the young people need to realize that the animal is eventually going to be a nutrient-dense product that's going to be on the plate of a consumer. Besides all the byproduct things that we also have as well, right? So we've got meat and bone meal that continues into to the uh, system of animal production and all the, the wonderful things like steric acid that goes into your tires and allows them to run cooler and we, we can run tires longer than, than what we ever did. So food safety and security is, is important. Uh, and, but we also need to make sure that animal well-being is uh, also taken care of. Uh, we've had a uh, a number of times at, at different shows that, that you work with where an animal is not uh, feeling well and, and people are afraid. Maybe there was an injury that happened and they're afraid to go ahead and do their animal husbandry responsibility and take care of that animal because of fear of the drug test. And uh, I, I think that, that we have to keep those situations in mind as well. And then whether there's a competitive advantage or not uh, is, is something to me, as long as it's safe to go in the food system and we've cared for that animal well, then we've covered the two main bases of the industry that uh, the, the animal project highlights. And, and when we do that, then, then I think we, we have to look at the rules of FDA and USDA standards and, and what's at stake, right? And, and when we look at uh, what's at stake through the shows, there's the reputation of the family, there's the reputation of the educational programs and the events that are hosting those families to, to be able to show there's food safety concerns, animal well-being, the reputation of the industry. I think a lot of times we don't look at, we just think about the show and what is the billions of dollars that each industry represents. And, and they're kind of the poster child, lack of a, a better term, of, of the industry and, and what we're striving for. And actually, those barns, those events, so if you take the Houston Livestock Rodeo, you take Fort Worth, you take the uh, Illinois State Fair, Indiana State Fair, those are all centers of excellence. And, and that's what we're, we're trying to promote, agriculture as a center of excellence and the ability to, to feed that food or give that food towards our consumers. Now, you know, zero tolerance, back to your question, Dale, is um, – Zero tolerance is really hard to, to uh, actually receive or be able to hit that tolerance because there's so many things in the environment. And Dale, you and I have talked about uh, a number of times, if you, if you took the cash out of your pocket um, and we swabbed that cash and we did a full analysis on it, we would find cocaine on the cash or some type of, of drug on the cash because it's part of our environment, right? It may only be 0.002 parts per trillion, but it's still there and, and it's not at zero. And so we have to realize where we are within the environment. I really thought that this year, the, the biggest challenge we were going to face was ractopamine 
And being able to have ractopamine-free, what do we do, right? It's a legal compound. It is a safe compound in the United States being fed, uh, pigs being fed ractopamine, as long as that product is at 50 parts per billion or less of ractopamine, it's fine. Now, when I was over in China, I got to go over there a number of years ago and wasn't planned, but got to address their Department of Agriculture and their Department of Commerce. Ractopamine was still a hot topic, right? And, and so they were concerned from a food safety standpoint. And we have to produce food to go over, pork to go over there. That uh, is it zero tolerance? No. The World Trade Organization has set the standard and China has agreed to it at 10 parts per billion or less in the product is considered zero tolerance. So that's why I think we need to rethink zero tolerance from a show industry standpoint. And, and, and while we're on the topic of ractopamine and producing that, how are we going to get those hogs to that plant? And we say we've been using ractopamine and now the plants aren't going to take them, right? All of our, our major packers are not going to take any hogs that have been fed ractopamine. How long is it going to take to clean up your facilities so that you can get to below 10 parts per billion? Is it going to take a year? Is it going to take 18 months? It's It's in the auger system, it's in the feed bins, it's in the feeders, it's in the air. And, and we just have to realize that it is part of the environment. And so we cannot be at zero tolerance. Does that answer, answer your question, Dale, as to the relevance of zero tolerance and how the environment actually doesn't allow us to be able to be at zero for a number of different situations. That does, Matt, and I think an excellent uh, explanation of of zero tolerance. And and I think just to 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 simplify, when we're talking about ractopamine or trade name paline that that has been used in the, in the swine industry and even in the beef industry, uh, it is it is a situation, and and if they're they're considering ten parts per billion and less acceptable from the World Trade Organization and, and going into China and other countries that are wanting to keep the ractopamine-fed hogs out, that's using or implementing some common sense. And, and what I appreciate, Matt, when every time I, I listen to you discuss this, and I know you've talked to so many show managers about this, that zero tolerance sounds great on the surface. I'm, I'm going to jump in. If, if I hadn't been in discussions with you or in this industry for a long time, and somebody said, well, we need to bring in a zero tolerance drug testing program into the junior stock shows, I'm all in on that. It sounds great, but we've got to implement some common sense along with the science. And I think proper testing and using quantitative testing and drawing some lines there on where, where are those tolerance levels on, on ractopamine? Do we put it at, at 10 parts per billion? But somebody like Matt can come in and, and actually sort through some of the, the data and sort through what's from the environment and we could actually assess some some different guidelines or different levels that, that are acceptable within maybe we just call it zero tolerance with common sense implementation. 
Well, zero tolerance is easy, right, from an administration standpoint, because, oh, my gosh, it's there. We don't have to know any of the science. We don't have to know anything. It's there. They're out. And I, I do think that when you think about the FDA rule and, and what our system is set up to be, where we're, we're, buying, we're buying feed products, right? And a lot of the feed products have gone to ractopamine-free type of facilities, but let's say you're just buying your feed down at your local feed mill and the batch before they had, had mixed. And we've had this occur at, uh, at a livestock event where a pig tested positive for Zilmax or Zilpaterol hydrochloride, which is a beta-2 adrenergic agonist used within the cattle industry. And a pig tested positive for Zilpaterol. Right away, the show management says, well, they're out, Zilpaterol. Now, what was the competitive advantage of that Zilpaterol? You guys have any, why? Zilpaterol is used in the cattle industry, but it's not used in the swine industry. Because swine do not have sufficient numbers of beta-2 type receptors for that compound to actually work. So the company hasn't gone after that swine industry because it doesn't work, right? And when we come to find out as we go through and you just raise a red flag, oh, there's still petrol there, we better find out what's happening. You get feed samples from, from the feed mill, you have them analyzed, guess what? The feed that they bought had Zilpaterol in it because the, the feed that was mixed prior to was a supplement for a cattle feed yard. It was still at less than 1% level. It fit the industry standards of FDA 1% rule, but we still, because of our detection capabilities, still picked it up. That's why we have to be able to look at the data, look at the levels and see how did this occur and try to synthesize what, what happened in the situation. That's the only, the fairest way I think that, that we need to look at it. And we're, we're coming at this and saying, well, we need to tolerate certain levels. I don't want anybody to mistake that Ryan or myself or Matt is, is trying to say we can, we can loosen up the drug testing, anything like that. That's not at all what we're talking about. We're talking about Let's implement the science along with common sense that if we just send a, a urine sample off and we get it tested at a, a forensic laboratory that's not a quantitative test, it just comes back positive or negative. doesn't tell us what that level is. If we use a little more common sense in, in putting into our protocol, let's do some quantitative testing that, that Matt's talking about these different levels that we can actually detect, then all of a sudden we can, we can do these things. It's an easy excuse if we have an exhibitor that tests positive for Zilpaterol or, or Ractopamine in, in a sheep or a goat or whatever it is, well, it was in our feed. It wasn't us. We didn't know anything about it. That's very possible. And if it's at a very, very low level that Matt's discussing here, then that's very likely a, a contamination situation or an environmental situation that at those lower levels, there is no performance enhancing taking place. If we come back with levels that are extremely high, and, and Matt and Ryan would both agree with it on, on different, different drugs, those exhibitors need to be disqualified. It's, it's, it's fairly simple. 
But unfortunately, we don't have consistent testing protocols a- across the country, and it's it's frustrating. It's difficult, and I think a lot of it is a lot of the the show managers and others need to speak with people like Matt that has a firm grasp on on where everything is and can can bring all the 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 pieces together and explain it very very well. I agree with what you know Matt and you both say that we've got to have take a common sense look at it. The one thing that I guess I don't absolutely agree with Dale is I don't know if anything is simple about drug testing. And that's just because I have a personal story and I've been affected by this. And uh, a lot of people know it and uh, have seen about it, read about it. Drug testing started when I first started showing. I had, I don't even know how many animals drug tested out throughout my show career. But uh, one stare of mine in Denver did test positive for an illegal substance. Uh, wasn't a urine test. It was an organ test. Long story short, uh, that animal was disqualified from that show. Uh, there's lots of stories about it, not nearly as, as bad as what they want to make them out to be. But one thing that I don't think until you've been in that situation and you understand, that was 20-something years ago. I was a very young teenager, and uh, I wasn't in charge of what was happening. I wasn't aware of what was happening. And I think that's the case for most exhibitors that get put in this situation. And... uh You've got to understand that till this day, that gets brought up to me. It gets placed on my social media post, and it has haunted me the rest of my life. Even though I didn't do it, I had, was not aware of it and not control of that situation, but it's still there. I had to accept it. It was in my KF. I signed the entry form, and it was my steer, but also... When we're at this point and level of social media and you see those stories that get put out there about kids, you've got to remember that's a minor child that has real emotions and real feelings behind that. And we've got to be careful and protect the exhibitors as much as we possibly can because you don't know everyone's story and every on how that happened, everybody. And uh, that's one thing that's been very important to me. And I understand that. Nobody's a saint. Everybody's a sinner. And uh, the things that happen to us, good, bad, or indifferent, or make us who us are. But that one, one incident doesn't have to define who you are. And I guess that's one thing for me, talking about this subject, I want to safeguard and protect the exhibitors as much as possible. Do I think drug testing is necessary? Yes. I think that we need to have some common sense about it. Yes, I do. But first and the biggest thing for me is I think you've got to protect those exhibitors as much as humanly possible so they don't end up in a situation that is damaging to them when that child had no control over it. And so that's just a personal note on that. You know, Ryan, uh, I don't know how what was that, 20 years ago? Yes, sir. You know? Over. And, and so I think that you bring up several good points in what you had brought about with your experience you know, if it's a terminal show, there's lots of things that we can do. You know, a lot of shows that are non-terminal, we're strictly looking at urine samples or even blood samples, depending on, on what we're trying to to measure. And, and it may end up going that way uh, in, the, in the future. I think that as you look at it, 
and you have a terminal situation, there are several tissues that we take here and uh, we recommend that you do. So urine straight out of the bladder, kidney, liver, muscle tissue, hair samples, fat samples, eyeballs for ocular fluid, all those things, depending on the compound that we're talking about, tells us a story and can give us a timeline. In your instance, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, it was through ocular fluid and in which uh, it tested positive. You probably had a, a clean sample in terms of urine. The kidney didn't show anything. The liver didn't show anything because the compound moves through different organs at a different rate. And we know that we, we can clear to, depending on what it is. But ocular fluid has a real high binding affinity for certain compounds. And we can detect that uh, if it's a beta adrenergic agonist. Uh, whether it's a one or a two, we can detect it 150 days out, still be there, right? So I think that if we're serious about it, those samples, we can look at it, establish a timeline, and it may or may not have occurred the time that you possess that calf or that lamb or that hog. And so I think we need to take that in into account when we go through uh, the screening and we go through the process, you just need to look at that data and say, okay, did this really happen? And 20 years ago, they didn't have that capability. <laughs> it, 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 it was, it was zero tolerance, right? Right. And probably didn't understand what, what we do now, uh, on, on a number of compounds. And it was, it was pretty new, it was zero tolerance, and this is just the, the way that it's going to be. And there wasn't anybody saying, whoa, wait a minute, guys, we need to back up the train and realize zero tolerance may or may not be able to be occurred because now we have, uh, we have transdermal drugs too. We haven't even talked about them. And, and some of them, banamine, uh, flunixin is, is, is the big culprit. And we know that banamine is a big violator within the industry, oh, yeah. let alone the, the cattle side. But Hans Coetzee did a really nice study from Iowa State and where they had administered banamine to hogs in, in, a, in a pen, just 20, 25% of them. And then they tested everything in, in the pen. Well, all the hogs tested positive for banamine. But their concentration levels were certainly different. If they were administered the compound, it was at one level. If they were not administered the compound, it was at another level. At day eight or 13, I'd have to look at, at the, the thing, they were all at, at the same level, right, and going through. So, uh, and Travis Mays, who's down at Texas A&M Laboratory, it does a wonderful job. I have a great deal of respect for Travis. He's got a, a paper out that is very similar. And so I think when we look at just, oh, banamine, it popped up in, let's say, a simple ELISA test, and we may or may not have quantification as what Dale had made reference to, I think just a flag needs to go up and say, oh, well, we need to look at this again. 
let's test and see if we have another positive and an independent lab. And if we do, then let's do the quantification so we know what we're, we're dealing with. And we, that way we're taking a, a common sense approach. And I have to, I have to give credit to all the Texas majors. You know, we talked about this two or three years ago at the Knowles Rams meeting there in San Angelo. And I tell you what, Dr. Bowman there at Houston, everybody at Fort Worth and uh, Real at State Fair of Texas, they all are, are taking a, a much more common sense approach to the drug testing and looking at it. And they've made responsible decisions. We can also get some metabolic crossover as well or similar biological pathways. And, you know, the situation last year with Tylenol and what was going on, those guys, Bowman and those guys at those shows, as well as the Dixie National and some of the, they made the right call. Because first of all, those levels were astronomical. We start to look at it. There's a protein called aniline, and it's in a lot of hair products, right? And, and it crosses over metabolically, similar to Tylenol, and that may be a, a cause of it. Now, John Sullivan and I, I called John and told him about it and said, hey, this is kind of what it's looking like. And, and he was grateful for the call. Nobody had called him. Nobody had said anything. And they realized that, well, maybe we need to look at formulating some things differently on their end of the show. But the, the good thing is all those majors, and particularly Houston, Dr. Bowman did a, a great job at making sure the right thing was done. I agree completely with what you say. I mean, I do think, and it's actually, I have more experience with the Texas majors, obviously, because I live here in Texas, so I have the most experience with those shows. But I do think that they have done an outstanding job, as you said, being forward-thinking on these things and trying to look out for the exhibitor's interest at heart and uh, just handling things with discretion and things like that. So I I agree agree with you completely, uh, Matt, that... Texas majors are really doing all they can to make, well, yet still make a fair playing field for all, also taking the exhibitors and their families and moving towards, as you said, more common sense process in this subject. I think that is is exactly right. And let's hope that that some of the other shows, national shows, state fairs, maybe follow the lead there that the Texas majors are taking after they had that presentation from, from Matt things seem to be going going the right direction. And, and just to qualify uh, from earlier, Matt had talked a little bit about developing a timeline by taking the urine versus some organ samples versus ocular fluid. And when I made the comment, and, and just before Ryan had told his personal story, I am a, a big fan that I think testing does need to be done. And if we can establish those timelines and test them correctly, and there's no question we're in levels of performance enhancing on certain compounds that are within that ownership period, then then we need to address it. If we can't identify that and we're simply doing the, the positive negative test, we're, we're zero tolerance, we're, we're opening a door up there that I don't think necessarily the exhibitors as liable as maybe the show that's, that's hosting that because they, they, they simply can't provide a sterile environment to implement that zero tolerance. They can't 
Uh, some of them don't understand the difference between quantitative and, and other types of testing, and, and it's, it's a challenge. It's, it's interesting to me that we can, we can use this as an example, not only in, in showing livestock, but anytime the level of competition rises to where it is in the junior market ring, we'll all three agree that there's going to be some that want to take shortcuts, and that is no longer an even playing field. And I think all of us want to try to create that even playing field. And as a breeder, as a parent, there's lots of reasons for that. As a breeder, if, if you stop and think about it, if I'm raising higher quality stock or, or in the upper end of, of show stock, there's more value in purchasing those genetics that have quality than somebody that can take one of lesser quality and manufacture that one to have success. So there's, there's a multitude of reasons that, that breeders, exhibitors, we, we all need to go the same direction here and, and try to keep that, that even playing field as best we can. I think, Dale, you brought up uh, an interesting point, and, and I've been a proponent for quantification for, for a long time, over, over a decade. And we can talk about the lower level, right, and the background noise. But at the same time, we need to have judicious use of those product-enhancing additives that, that we have in, in our feed as well. And, and let's just talk about uh, paline, ractopamine, right? And it, you're supposed to feed it at a certain level, right? Nine grams per ton. It, and when it first came out, it was 18 grams per ton. Now it's gotten at the right dosage rate. Uh, and yeah, there's guys that are master feeders and, and they can they know what the challenges are at those extra levels. And, and we've got some that uh, are just feeding it way beyond the labeled dosage rate. And, and that becomes a food safety issue. That becomes uh, an animal well-being issue. And I think when we quantify, even if it's, it's swine and we do the test and it says that it's ractopamine, I think we still need to quantify that to make sure that it was done judiciously and not beyond the label or a non-labeled dosage rate. That's as bad as a falsely accused person on background noise in, in, in my book. And, and so if we do things, there's, there, these companies spend millions and millions of dollars to get products uh, to the marketplace to ensure safety of that product, both from the animal standpoint and the product standpoint. And we need to adhere to those. And the USDA and FDA does a, a good job at, at uh, making sure that the products are safe and the ultimate product that the consumer consumes is safe as well. So I, I think that it, it can be on both ends of the spectrum for quantification. I agree completely. And, and I, I don't know the best route and I hope there's show managers, show officials out there that are, that are listening to what Matt has to say. And I'm sure Matt's more than happy to, to create an open dialogue with, with any of those show officials out there and, and give them whatever information that he can. But if we could move toward a more consistent protocol across shows, those that choose to drug test, let's, let's implement the science we're talking about. Let's implement the common sense. Let's get the timeline established so we can, we can be careful. 
and, and quite honestly, and, and Matt, please correct me if I'm wrong, we've developed testing procedures that have really outgrown the testing protocols that maybe state fairs have had in place for many years. And because these, the sensitivity of some of our, our ability to test to the one part per trillion uh, or even, even less is crazy to the level that we've gone to. Now we need to adapt the protocols to, to fit some of those kind of things. And, and hopefully some of these, these shows will, will start adapting those protocols. And it seems like the Texas majors are, are going the right direction. Let's hope the rest of the shows can go that direction. And I don't know how to bring everybody on board. I don't know how to get that consistent protocol. I think that open dialogue helps, right? And I think that both you and Ryan have brought out things that we probably need to elaborate on just a little bit. And and that uh, when you talk about parts per trillion, with strength, with power, comes a large responsibility. And so with that responsibility, when we have that strength, we need to be responsible enough to look at it from a realistic industry standpoint and make sure that we're not harming, we're not creating any harm of anybody that's involved. And so, so who comes responsible, right? Is the exhibitor responsible for a possible violation? You know, just touching on what Matt said and something about what Dale said earlier, once you get to these shows, and I mean, I'm not talking about the jackpot level, but when you get to these major shows, these state fairs, these county fairs, where you know that drug testing is going to be there and it's going to be enforced and all that, there are so many of us that have spent hours and hours and hours staying out in those barns with those animals 24-7, taking shifts and all that. And I get that. And that's a lot of us do that there is still no way to control everything because at some of these fairs and some of these state fairs and major shows, there are carnivals and rodeos and all kinds of things that go late into the night, way after the majority of stock show families have left the barn, gone to eat, gone back to the hotel. And those spectators that are leaving the rodeo or the carnival at 11, 10, 11, midnight at night, go through those barns and they want to pet the animals and touch the animals and, you know, I've sat there and I've watched it a million times and I thought, oh, God, thank I, I, God, I am here and I am able to. Because you have no idea what they're doing three aisles down. You just see people roaming through and playing in the uh, stalls with animals and stuff like that. So, again, I, I just find it so hard to get to a point where we know that even though this isn't a necessary thing that we have to do, it is just really hard to fathom how it can be zero tolerance, like you said, because there are so many outside factors that exhibitors don't have control of. Well, and what what compounds are we looking at and going after, right? Uh, caffeine, for instance. And, you know, okay, somebody spilled some coffee and this lamb drank part of that uh, and now we've got a detectable level or the, a chocolate bar somebody you know fed something a chocolate bar now now we've got so I think that we've got to really keep in mind food safety and security and animal well-being and if we keep those two lines in the sand at the utmost part of our thinking then I, I think we've got a reasonable 
drug testing situation because we're it's securing the animal's well-being and the food supply. And, and some of the other things that we test for may or not be something that is plausible to the industry. And, and there's a cost, right? You're exactly right, Brian. There's a cost to this. There's, there's economically. How do we pay for this drug testing? You know, a lot of a lot of um, it's part of your entry fees, right, and and that type of thing. But there's the personal effort that you've talked about. There's the emotional side of it, Ryan, that that you've you've hit on as as well as Dale, because socially the family reputation and and do I really want to go to that show? If an event is not taking a realistic look at how they administer their drug testing, I would say that numbers are going to go down because people are going to say, I can spend my money in different ways or I can go to this other show because we have so many opportunities now. for So many options. Yeah, a, a lot of different options. And then, you know, we still have the the animal and muscle food industries that, that we uh, are the poster child for uh, a, a lot of times. And so we need to keep that. Plus, I, I think that we need to look at the integrity of the event be, becomes uh, something that we, we look at from a, a cost and benefit standpoint as well. Excellent. I, I think in, in Matt and, and Ryan, I guess if as I'm, I'm listening to you guys discuss, maybe there, there is a simple path forward that if, if we simply go back to what Matt's talking about, let's, let's take into consideration the animal welfare. Let's use some of the food safety parameters that are already in place. Let's bring science and bring common sense into this. And I think there is a path forward that, that's reasonable. Now, that the challenging part is to get all the show officials and everybody on board and, and figuring out how to pay for it, all the above. There's complications here. There's, there's a good path, but it's a difficult path to get everybody going the same direction. If we can do that, in my mind, we would have a much healthier industry. We'd feel much more comfortable about going to, to A, B, and C shows, all the above. And it, and it protects the, those, those exhibitors. It protects those families. And and it really isn't any more difficult than animal welfare. Follow the food safety guidelines in place. Use the science that we have available, the extreme testing procedures that we can take to determine just how low or how high those levels are, and then implement that common sense. I don't think we can expect a show official to understand biochemistry, to understand all the different testing procedures, to be able to look and evaluate a carcass. And we haven't even talked about that yet. We can't expect them to do all that, but what we can expect show officials to do, especially when you have Matt Clays out there willing to assist, they can discuss these these issues in an open dialogue with him. And and I'm I can promise you that that Matt is going to put food safety and animal welfare at the forefront, and then follow with the science and the common sense. We try to do that. And one subject that maybe we haven't talked about, guys, as we're reaching out and doing these challenging discussions, we haven't even talked about physical alterations yet. And how do you detect those physical alterations and, and, and what gets held up in court? And we haven't talked about uh, how we can protect ourselves uh, as an industry. 
uh, from liability release and litigation like the rodeo people do. Because when my kids were young and we were in North Carolina, they rodeoed. And when you entered, whew, you signed away your right to dispute anything that uh, was whether it was to score a test or, or whatever. And I think that we need to look at that because when when 4-H and, and livestock projects were started, it was about the development of the child. And we have to keep that at the forefront. And, and we have to think about, you know, what are we teaching them to do? Do you win at all costs or not? And physical alterations, they become, become an, another aspect of the industry that I think the events and the scientific community and those that care about the program probably need to address. I completely agree with you on that. And, and you know, it's an unfortunate side that's out there, but it is there and it does need to be addressed. And like you were saying about your kids and terms of rodeo, when you sign that entry fee, you, you kind of sign your life away. And then to some extent, that's still how it is when you sign an entry card as an exhibitor. It's not quite as bad as that probably, but uh, it still is there. And so I think the best thing while we're on this subject is, you know, take us through Dr. Clay's when you get that animal there and that carcass, what y'all look for, what is flagged, et cetera, or how you go about that. Because again, I don't think a lot of people have that in-depth knowledge on that. We, we do a number of things. Uh, when we, we harvest here at uh, Purdue in our new meat lab, uh, we, we've uh, got a, a great facility to go through. We look at physical things, and uh, in the pig world, I would say feet that have been manufactured would, would be looked for. We also go through the process before they go into the cooler. We look at uh, blemishes. We, we go through the carcass to look for blemishes. Uh, sometimes they can be detected uh, on the, the harvest floor. Uh, and we harvest uh, livestock for other things besides uh, the Indiana State Fair. We do other things as well, other state fairs and other national shows. This is just our procedure. Once it's in the cooler, those carcasses are gone over again, and we look for injection site blemishes and those types of situations. And there's people all around the country, uh, Dale and Ryan, that uh, have expertise in, in different areas. Um, we've got uh, people out in Colorado that are, are certainly uh, experts in, in those types of things that, that we've worked with. And we also do a kiss test. You know, we take all the samples, right? We take the urine straight out of the bladder. We take a kidney sample, liver sample, eyeballs, muscle tissue, fat samples, hair samples, those types of things. And, and we package them up and we take them and, and we put store them appropriately. And we go through the analysis based off of the urine. And then if, if a flag comes up, and maybe that's what we should talk about in that initial screening, I think that it should just be a flag. If we have a positive, it's like, oh, okay, these people are guilty. No, it's okay. Right. Here, here's a situation that we probably need to take a, another look at. We need to get a confirmation. If we get a confirmation, then we need to get quantification. 
and then make a, a determination as to what's going on. Physical alteration is the same way. You need to take those samples, you need to send them to the lab and uh, get your, your confirmation there that way. Absolutely. Excellent. And I think, Matt, and, and we're, we said we're not afraid to talk about tough topics and, and we're into the alteration of, of the issues with the carcasses. And, and as we advance in the testing side, it appears as though the industry's maybe gone another direction that, that if we are to use certain procedures, they simply aren't going to be detected in a urine test or a tissue test. And, and that's where your carcass evaluation comes into play. I know it's, it's difficult, and there's always going to be people out there working harder to find a way to take that shortcut than maybe what we would like it to be. And, and I, I would just strongly encourage them, if we'd put as much effort into to breeding better genetics, into better feeding and exercise programs, or the time we put into taking some of these shortcuts, maybe we'd be going down a much better path. But Matt, if you could address just a little bit more specifically that we could test everything in the world, and if it's not a terminal show, our hands are, are a little bit tied if we don't have some new technologies coming into play. Well, it, it can be, but, but we also have technologies. There's people out there that are, are doing the research projects to try to find the technologies that can be used on the live animal to detect those physical alterations along with the sciences. Guys, uh, scientifically, we're, we're moving to biologicals and markers and those types of things that uh, can have some complexity to them, but the animal well-being industry uses those things uh, very well. Uh, I, I think that that's another area where there is continued uh, people that are doing the research and looking at merger of technologies and scientific markers to be able to positively detect some of those things. I agree with Dale. Uh, we've got people in this field that have stock show experience that are really well-knowledged and well-versed in this, and we've got to use them especially people like Mr. Clay's here that are willing to help us and make this a, a better industry for everyone involved, not just the shows, not just the exhibitors, not just because, and again, like he said, ultimately, in these market animals, this is going to be a food product, and we have to understand that. I agree with you, Dale, that it's probably not a real funny topic, and it shouldn't. it's, it's not going to be as entertaining as some of ours, uh, but it is a very serious one, and you know, when we talked about having this podcast and the Beyond the Ring platform, we committed to taking on subjects and areas that probably a lot of people didn't want to talk about because we wanted a healthier environment for the show industry. And to do that, you have to be unafraid to talk about things that are, seem taboo or uncomfortable to discuss. And so, again, that's why we chose this one. And I am greatly appreciative for Matt coming on here and sharing his vast knowledge and all the things that he does for the junior stock show industry. And I hope he will continue to, you know, go out here and educate not just the shows that are willing to listen to him, but anybody that uh, will listen to his knowledge and take that and go on and help this industry as much as possible. Excellent. And I, I think that 
that Matt, you've addressed the the topics that that some people do not want to talk about, and I know that you you didn't even hesitate when I made that call to ask you to to come on and, and discuss some of these issues. This probably is is one of our more serious episodes. Uh, maybe not as entertaining to some, but but topics that that need to be discussed. Ryan and I are are very committed to to doing so, and when we have experts like. Matt Clay's that can come in and discuss these things in, in a manner that he does, this educates everybody. And it, it's so simple for me that there, there is a path to do a better job in the, in the drug testing arena, make a better experience for the, the junior exhibitor. And there's those families that if we can just get everybody going down that same path, I think we're, we're in much better shape. Guys, uh, I appreciate you asking me to uh, be on your your second episode. I was proud uh, to be asked, and, and I it's an industry that is very very much uh, near and dear to to the heart. And just like the industry and what those young people are doing in terms of working harder, feeding better, getting good stock, and and making sure that they they get their showmanship skills honed and and get the the livestock presented the best that they can within the confines of of what they have to to work with. We don't need to let those challenging things, just like our 4-Hers don't let the challenging things stop us from doing the right thing, right, for for the family, the program, the events, and and overall the animal agriculture and industry. Guys, thanks for for asking me to be, be part of Beyond the Ring. Thank you, Matt, and and uh, we appreciate it. And hopefully, we'll we'll get a chance to bring you on again here in the near future. And and Matt's well versed in a lot of topics, so we're going to lean on him whenever, whenever he allows. Episode three, Ryan, you want to take us into the direction we're going there? Sure. Uh, again, I'm really excited about episode three because again, when Dell and I were talking about this and what we wanted to do, I have I've always been a person that wants to be different and unique from anybody else, and. Uh, one thing that we, a direction that we thought that we could make this podcast more that way is to have junior exhibitors and youth that are actually involved in this program on here as co-hosts. And so uh, one of my first big ideas was to have a contest to have the first junior spotlight co-host on Beyond the Ring. That contest is going on right now. We had way more submissions than we thought we would. We had so many videos and so many creative and intelligent and well articulated kids that we formed a committee. We narrowed it down to 10. We put those 10 up on our Facebook and whoever gets the most likes is going to be our guest next week. And uh, it's a heated competition. Uh, We're real proud of all 10 of the finalists. And, you know, for those of you kids that are out there that are in that top 10 or those that didn't make it, don't think that it's not going to happen for you because we're going to do more contests. And more importantly, we're going to talk to kids and ask kids that we just want to hear from. And so, don't think that because you didn't make the top 10 or you don't win this contest, you may not be on this podcast. But that's what our next uh, week's episode is about. When that winner gets announced, we're going to contact that person and talk to that individual and see what they want to talk about and what they want to discuss. And I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you, Ryan. And, and we will be posting those results uh, here today. And, and actually, the, the podcast is being released Friday. We plan to release those results on Friday on who our guest will be. And, and just to reiterate what Ryan had said, we have some incredibly talented, intelligent, well-spoken young people that submitted videos. Some didn't even make the, the top 10 in terms of finalists. 
Ryan and I are, are going to extend an invitation to, to several of those to, to come on as, as we have time to, to bring them in as co-hosts because it's, it's interesting. We, we need to get down to that ground level, and we always assume that the junior wants this and that. Let's just talk to those juniors and find out what they like and let them be a part of the, the whole procedure. But thank you, uh, Ryan. Thank you, Matt. It's, it's been a pleasure. This is the conclusion of episode two. We will see you next week. Bye now.